0: Hello, Rocky Pink. How are you today? Hey, my name is Joel. I'm one of the pastors here. At Rocky. Actually, I get to be a pastor again because our family left on an adventure and then we got to come home and be a part of this with you. It's so good to be here. I'm so excited for the things that God is doing. 2023 is going to be a really amazing year for us as we chase after him. And something I am super excited about is what's happening in two Fridays from now, and that is the launch of Rocky Peak singles. I'm so looking forward to this. Yes, you can be excited. So Christy and I have been working behind the scenes with an amazing launch team as we plan out what this ministry is gonna be all about. And so the first Friday in February, February 3rd, right here on campus, we're gonna launch this. And so I just wanna invite you out. This is for any single adult who's looking to chase after Jesus and is looking for community and others who are running that same race. And so if that sounds good to you, come on out. If you're like, I'm not sure, come on out. And then if you don't come back, I'll be hurt, but that's okay, you can at least check it out for yourself. And so I just want to make sure you know about this, and you're more than welcome to be a part of it. So the clock is ticking. So this is in your program. Pull it out. And hey, it's not just for those of us who call Rocky Peak home. So if you've got some friends that are just like, hey, I'm trying to figure out how do I chase after Jesus, and I'm walking out my singleness, bring them along, because the party is going to be for all of us together. Sound good? Yes. Yeah. So I think one of the things that's really important on the journey of chasing after Jesus is running alongside others who are trying to run in that same race. Because I I don't know about you, but have you ever experienced this? If you would call yourself a follower of Jesus, that there are times where it's not always fun, where it's sometimes hard, where it's challenging, where you're wrestling with Jesus. If I'm going to take you seriously and pursue you, there's heat coming my way. There may be a cost to belonging to you. Like I, I remember wrestling with this in my, my teenage years as I was approaching the last half of my high school years, and, and I had like this amazing church that I was a part of, and then I also had this crew of friends that I would run with in my high school, and yet the more that I dove into that world with my, my friends, my buddies in high school, the more that I began to just feel this like check in my gut that, that what we were becoming, what we were about just wasn't good. Like, like the way that we would think about and treat the girls that we knew. I was like, hey, the, the, the phrase boys will be boys doesn't seem to justify treating women like that. Oh, yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> and it wasn't simply how we treated young women. It was how we treated each other. Like we were just mean, right? know, it was just there's a mean spirit to, this, to us. And, and I just remember really wrestling like, Jesus, the things that you call me to just seem so at odds with this and yet, if I'm going to take you seriously and walk with you, I think that this whole world might walk out on me. And so, are you real? And are you worth it? And this is my wrestle. And I remember I went to my youth pastor at the time, and, and I love Kyle. He's an amazing man who just poured so much into my story. And, and so, I just went and said, Kyle, I, I'm just I'm wrestling with what, what, where I'm at in my story. Like I, I was raised Christian I was born into a Christian family, so all the good that comes from that and all the challenges that come from that, that was my story. And, and so I just say, like, Kyle, is there more to this whole thing, like, than what I've discovered so far? Like, like I get it. Like, I know the stories. Like, like, David always wins. I get it. But is there more to it than that? And, and to Kyle's credit, he didn't understand what I was asking because I didn't even understand what I was asking and so he just went to his, his bookshelf in the office we were meeting, and, and he hands me a 365 daily devotional Bible reading book. And I remember I walked out of his office just so disappointed. Not because this wasn't something good, but this wasn't what I was looking for. I, this had already been a part of my story. And what I didn't realize at the time is that I, I was wrestling out what Paul describes Paul, one of the early Christian leaders, will describe in his own becoming of, of, a, of a young man into an adult, like in 1 Corinthians 13, he'll write these, these words, and he says, when I was a child, I thought like a child, and I reasoned like a child, but when I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. And I didn't realize that in my adolescence, in my own journey of faith, that was, that's, that's what I was trying to figure out. And and so even though I didn't get the answer I was looking for, I just knew I had to make a choice and my gut was singing enough that this path with this crew isn't where you wanna go in life. And so I made the choice, Jesus, I don't know everything and I, I'm, I'm kind of banking, hoping that this is true. So I'm just gonna lean in and go with you. And that was a very lonely senior year of high school. Like me and the library got really close <laughs> at school. My GPA thanked me. Well, my social credit was like, Phew, thank God we didn't have social media back then. And even though that was a tough decision, I am so glad I stuck with it even when it didn't make sense. Because five years later, I found what I was looking for. I was in university, I'm I'm wrapping up my last year of college, and and I had some free electives, and so there's some classes that I could take at my school. And and so there was this teacher that I'd heard of on campus who was very respected and esteemed by all of his colleagues. And the teachers that I would look to and respect and really admire would say about this guy, he's forgotten more than we've ever remembered. And so he was offering this class, and I was like, oh, okay, let me take this class. And it was a class on Christian thinking, and and what does it mean, like like our faith, and is it reasonable and sound, and all sorts of things like that. And so I remember, like, I showed up for the first day of class, and and I was just kind of sitting in the back row where every good introvert hangs out in any situation. My friends, my people, I see you. (laughs) And I remember he says this right out of the gate. Over the course of this next semester, you are going to learn to think thoughts you never knew to think before. We are going to go into the deep waters and it's going to be scary, but you are going to find something that you never even knew was possible. And I remember thinking, this guy is either incredibly arrogant or he knows something that I need. And what I realized over the course of that semester is that this is what my teenage self was longing to find. And that over the course of that semester, I did learn to think thoughts I never knew to think before. And where I came to in my faith journey was this beautiful place that I suddenly realized I could believe with my eyes wide open. And it changed the course of my life. And so here's what I wonder for you today. What if there is more to the Christian story than what you've realized or even fully considered yet? Like, what if there's more to this thing that we're chasing after? And is it possible to go into those deep waters and not drown (laughs) and see if there's life to be found today? And so as we're continuing this worldview series, we're going to chase after that. But before we jump into those deep waters, I just want to pause and pray and invite Jesus to join us in this. Because if he doesn't show up, we're just wasting our time. And so let's pray. Jesus, we want to come into this moment with a posture that says we're open. We're willing to give you an opportunity to speak into our story, to show us that maybe there's more to this life than we've fully considered or even realized yet, that, that you are real and you are worth it. And so would you meet us today as we, as we engage our minds, as we, as we jump into those deep waters? I, I think so oftentimes in my story as I'm wrestling with that, I feel like I'm Peter in the boat and I see you out there and I want to be with you, but I'm scared to death because there's a storm. And so Jesus, would we just kind of like with a reckless abandon, just jump in where you are and please don't let us drown. And so here we come in your name, amen. All right, so here we are, week three of this worldview series that we've been in, Renewing Your Mind. This idea that, that we can be transformed by the renewing of our minds, that if we, as we learn to think well and deep about our faith, we can actually begin to grow up in that faith. And so we've been chasing after this and looking at it from the standpoint of there are these things called worldviews that exist. Everyone has a worldview. We may not be fully aware of it, but not everyone has the same worldview. So that's why we bump into a lot of things in the world around us. And we're like, wait, we don't all believe the same thing. And not everyone seems to like what everyone believes. And it can get confusing at times. But we're doing this because we want to learn to think well, to love God with all our heart, soul, body, and mind. And I don't know about you, but it's kind of been a deep dive so far. Like, it was really fun. This week, our life group met for the first time, and this was a new life group that we were putting together, and so we knew some people, but not everyone knows everyone, and it was really fun because, like, in the conversations that we were having in our first week, some people were, like, totally geeking out about this series. Like, this is awesome, and other people were, like, and I don't know half of what's going on yet. <laughs> but what we said is, like, well, let's just all give space for each other and lean in and see what God has for us. And, and so maybe some of you are here, and you're just kind of wondering, like, like why are we doing this series? And not simply from the standpoint, it's hard to grab all the concepts, but maybe you're asking the question, why are we doing the series? Because as followers of Jesus, isn't isn't just the baseline of what we're supposed to do is just to love people well? Like, isn't that what it's all about? And I would say, yes, which is why we're doing this series. Like, we're, we're learning to understand worldview so we can understand the world we live in and the world our neighbors are living in and why there's not always on the same page moments with people. We're not doing this world worldview series so that we can create a divide between us and culture. The divide already exists. We're doing this worldview so that we can learn how to build a bridge over that divide to our neighbors, to our coworkers, to our family members, and have a conversation together that's meant to be winsome and helpful. See, because we want to love our neighbors well, we need to understand the world they're living in and how they think so we can engage with them. And I want to understand my own worldview so that when those things collide, we don't attack each other, we engage together. And so this is why we're doing this. This is what we're chasing after. And so if you're kind of like still like three weeks in, they're kind of like, eh, I just want to lovingly say, get over it and get in the game (laughs) because it's exciting when we begin to see that there is life in the deep waters and we can find it together. And so let's jump in today. We're going to take a look at worldview assumptions and implications. And so there in your message notes, there's this working definition that we've been unpacking along the way about what a worldview is. And so here it is. Here it goes. A worldview is our big picture view of reality. And it's based on our deepest assumptions about the most important questions of life. Right? So when you begin to really understand what your worldview is, it helps give you the big picture of all of reality and all of life. And every worldview is based upon some assumptions of how we think the world operates. Is there a God? Is there not a God? All those sorts of questions. And how does that all interconnect and interplay? And so the interesting thing is that every worldview has implications for how we live our life. It will both impact and inform how we interface with others and the choices and the decisions that we make in life. So let's take a highly contentious topic like abortion and recognize that the reason that is not the same conversation people are having is because there are different worldviews that underpin either side of that. So somebody that's pro-life is coming from a totally different worldview than somebody who's pro-choice, and we're not even having the same conversation as we're trying to figure it out. And both sides are approaching it from a rights-driven mindset. And so one person is approaching that conversation, maybe from a worldview that that says, like, hey, all we are is highly evolved creatures, and there is no morality in in what's going on. In fact, the only violation of morality is if someone else is imposing their view on me and violating my reproductive rights. And that's where that person's coming from but then there's somebody who's maybe more on the pro-life side of the equation, and they're like valuing this idea that all human life has intrinsic value because if there's a God, we're meant to reflect him. That gives value to every single one of us, even those of us who aren't born yet. And so it's not like I want to impose a value and take away reproductive rights. I'm just saying there's another person in the equation who has rights that we need to consider. And so can you see how they're never even having the same conversation? And so it's helpful to understand worldviews so we can engage in the right conversation in a situation like that. Now, now we're not, not going to try and resolve that right now because that's intense, right? And some of you are like, whew, okay. <laughs> getting sketchy, getting, getting kind of thing. But all I just want to say, like, point that out. And here's the interesting thing then about a worldview. How you view reality shapes what you believe. So those assumptions that we all have, it shapes what you believe, but it's not simply a one-way street because what you believe will also shape how you view reality. And so they oftentimes go like this, one informing the other, and sometimes the worldview drives what you believe, but sometimes your beliefs drive what your worldview is. So let's take another highly controversial topic and just tease this out. Do you believe in aliens? <laughs> no, some people yes. Like I, I'm kind of like, I, well, I, I'm a sci-fi nerd. <laughs> I really hope E.T.'s out there somewhere because i would love to phone home with him if that were to ever happen right like but like honestly i don't know but here's the thing if you do believe in aliens that shapes how you view the world so any unexplained phenomena that you see the crop circles or the, the the flying things in the sky whatever the you jump to the conclusion it's them and they've arrived and i hope they're not here to eat us right but if you are like, no, aliens cannot exist, they never exist, then the way you view all those unexplained phenomenon is probably this. It's the government messing with us. <laughs> and so we can be looking at the same thing, but our beliefs are causing us to interpret it differently. Does that make sense? And so this is what we want to tease out, because something that we want to ask about our worldviews, especially when they're very different, is, is there one that more accurately portrays the picture of reality. Like Michael's been using this analogy of the map. Your worldview is a map by which you try to navigate life. And so is there a map that actually points to the reality of the life all around us? Or do some of us hold a map that like, like we bought at Hollywood to see where the stars live, but it's 30 years old and it doesn't hold up anymore, right? Like it's that sort of a thing. And so one of the ways that we chase after the question, is a worldview true? is we can ask kind of these two questions. Is this worldview sound and is it satisfying? By sound, I mean, does it make sense? Is it reasonable and does it make sense of life? But then when we say, is it satisfying? What we mean by that is, does it resonate with like the deepest parts of my story that is longing to find meaning and purpose? Is there a way in which it can be known? And does it lead us into what we might call the good life? And so as we're chasing after this question today, we're going to be looking at two very different worldviews that view reality in fundamentally different ways. And as we look at these two worldviews, we're going to ask the question, like, hey, which one is the better map? Is there one of these that is more sound and satisfying than the other one? And then what are the implications? And so let's jump in. We're going to start here. We're just kind of painting a picture of two worldviews, very different ways of looking at reality. And so here's the first one we would describe as this, secular naturalism. So secular naturalism would be this sort of view that the natural or the material or the physical world is the only reality. That's all there is. And we put the word secular in front of us because it usually means get all religion out of the conversation. So that's just a secular naturalist world view of the world. The other worldview that we we're gonna look at is what we would call supernaturalism. And so supernatural would say, well, yes, the natural world exists, as does the immaterial world. There's a material world, Madonna sang about it in the 80s. There's also an immaterial world, the police sang about it in the 80s. We are spirits in the material world. I think that would be a good worship song if we ever could do it here. And these two realities are interconnected in the interface. And so the question is, which of these is the better picture? Now, here's what Christianity Christianity lives in the supernatural worldview. That's like the umbrella in which Christianity would live. Because as a Christian, someone who identifies as a follower of Jesus, I believe that there is a God who exists, a God who transcends space and time because God is the originator of space and time. And I also believe that there was a person named Jesus who lived historically true in this world, who was a dude, but he was so much more than just a man. And his death was not the end of his story, because the resurrection of Jesus was an event in real human history, and it was a supernatural event. And my hope as a follower of Jesus is that because death wasn't the end of his story, my hope is that death is not the end of my story. Death is not the end of any of our stories because Jesus has paved a way for us into an eternal kind of life. And we're going to explore that idea later on in the series. But as we look at these two worldviews, we're going to see they have a different way of trying to explain the reality that we're in. Not, sometimes not even having the same conversation, though there is some cohesion and similarity. Like So for the most part, a secular naturalist worldview and a supernatural worldview would agree that there is a physical world and you and I are real people. Now, not everyone in a supernatural worldview would necessarily hold that. But in general, that's the thing. But the differences are pretty significant. Because secular naturalism would say, no, the physical cosmos, the universe, that's all there is, period. And a supernaturalistic worldview would say, no, 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 there's more to reality than just that. Like, reality is so much bigger than just what we can experience with our five senses. And so now we got to figure out, well, as we consider this and wrestle with both, we got to ask the question, then, which one makes more sense? Like, which is the better map? Is there one that is more sound and satisfying than the other one? And that's what we're going to chase together. But before we jump in, I want to poke at something that happens a lot in our culture when we begin to engage in conversations together, and we begin to realize that one person is sharing something that another person isn't buying, and oftentimes the way we'll respond in those moments is that when somebody is not really buying what someone else is saying, this is the response. Well, that's your truth. Have you encountered this or experienced this? Yeah, it's like a very frustrating moment when someone says that. Because it's like like the person who drops it's like mic drop moment, boom, we're done. And I'm like, well, I don't want to like fault the intention of that statement, but I want to poke at it, like the silliness of it. Because if somebody is saying that something is true, hey, that's your truth. Like, Shouldn't that mean, therefore, it is true? Because that's the word we're using. It's like, you keep using the word, but I don't think it means what you think it means. right? Like, like, what are we doing with this word? Like, regardless of what I think about it or anyone else does, regardless of whether I like it or not, whether you like it or not, if it's true, then it's true. But that's not what we mean when we say that, is it? Like, when we say, oh, that's your truth, we don't mean it. Like, I don't mean this when I would say that. I don't mean, wow, I couldn't disagree more. I think everything you believe is ridiculous and silly, but that's your truth, so I guess it's true, so I have to adapt my life accordingly. We don't mean that, do we? No, what we mean when we say that is, you're an idiot. (laughs) Like, I don't believe it, what you're saying. That's your truth. And we're just butchering the word. No, really quick, sidebar, sidebar. I'm not talking about the necessity of saying something like speaking your truth. I believe that's a beautiful thing. That's a powerful thing. Because when I'm speaking my truth, what I'm doing is I'm sharing my lived experience, and I'm putting it on the table so we can engage with it. I think that's such a powerful and important thing. I'm not poking in that. I think that's actually a necessary thing, especially for those who have been hurt, wounded, victimized, oppressed in the story. Finding your voice is powerful because you were meant to share it in this world. And so that's something that we should celebrate and affirm. And as Christians, we want to encourage that because I'm telling you, if the culture continues the way it is, we're going to need to speak our truth, speak the truth of Jesus as it's our story. So that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about this other idea that when we say, hey, that's your truth, what we're really trying to do is shut somebody down because that's poor thinking. It's actually childish thinking. Like when we're contrasting two different ways of looking at reality what we're trying to figure out is which one is actually true. And so it's never helpful and it's never satisfying when someone says, well, that's your truth. Like, like, it's never helpful to say that to an atheist or to a theist as they're having the conversation because they believe fundamentally different things. Like either God exists or God does not exist. It makes no sense to say, well, that's your truth and that's your truth as if somehow God exists in reality for one and God doesn't exist in reality for the other person. Like only one of those two scenarios can be true. So a better way of thinking about it as we're going after this, instead of saying, well, that's your truth, is to say, hey, I recognize that's what you believe. And, and realize that I think I believe something different. It's to, it's to give pause and to consider what is it you actually believe to be true? What are those assumptions you have? And then to give space for someone else to put their assumptions on the table. What are the assumptions that you have? What is it that you think is true? And then to actually chase after it together in a grown-up conversation to say, well, which one makes more sense? Like, which of these is actually true? Which more accurately reflects reality? So that's what we're going to do as we chase after this. day. We're going to chase secular naturalism and supernaturalism and say, hey, is there one that actually paints a better picture? And so I wanna begin this by kind of doing a thought experiment with you. Which of these can maybe paint the better map for us? And so let, let's imagine this, that you and I decided to go hang out at Malibu and walk along the beach, which by the way, we could do that because it's January in Southern California and we can do that. Like this week, I was driving on the freeway and I had the windows down and the sunroof open and I'm I'm alive! I'm like singing old Tom Jones, I'm alive! It was like a beautiful moment. Because if I had done that in Canada, I'd be dead right now. So it's like, yes, this is so great. So we could go to the beach right now, you and I, and just have a conversation walking along the beach. And, And so imagine we came across a sandcastle on the beach. And it's like intricate and beautiful. And we pause and we're just taking it in. And then imagine I said something like this. Isn't it amazing how over the last several lunar cycles, with the shifting of the tides and the winds and a few seagulls, This thing just formed all by itself. (laughs) Like, you'd probably look at me really odd, right? Like, you'd be like, Joel, it was those crazy kids over there. Like, they're building another one right now. We can see it. right? Like, what are you talking about? And so what if this world that we live in, this universe in which we exist, is like that? There's design and intricacy that screams for an explanation. And I love how the, the psalmist picks up on this. Psalm 19, David writes these words. Psalm 19, one through two, he says this. He says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. And day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. It's like the universe is singing a song and inviting us to join in the chorus. But wait. Do you remember what I said at the start about your worldview and how what you believe can shape what your worldview is and what your worldview is can shape what you believe? So the reality is we have to kind of like step back and be willing to say, hey, maybe there's something going on here. Because if what I believe shapes how I view reality, then somebody who holds a secular naturalist worldview will push back on me in that moment. And they'll say something like this. You're just letting your belief in God determine what you see. And they would say, no, the universe is not actually like a sandcastle. You're just reading design into it because you have this belief that precedes your view. And it's causing you to see that design. What they would say is like the universe is not actually like a sandcastle. The universe is much more like a beautiful crystal geode. And yeah, we would stumble across it in the sand and there it is and it's beautiful. And we see symmetry and shape, but the reality is no one made it. It just formed. But remember what I said at the beginning? How you view reality shapes what you believe, but what you believe shapes how you view reality? So if you're pointing at me saying, I'm, I'm pushing my belief into my view that it's a sandcastle, isn't it possible that your disbelief in God is causing you to not see the design, and therefore you have to make an explanation that it just happened? I'm just saying what's fair for the goose is good for the gander, right? Like It goes both ways. But now the dilemma is we're standing there is it a sandcastle or is it geode and we're standing in the sun in Malibu and we're like are we at an impasse we can't get at this like I can clearly not choose the line in front of you like what do we do with this well the fact is we're not stuck there is one of these worldviews that is a better map we just have to choose to push in deeper together we have to swim out farther into the deeper waters and ask questions and wrestle with it to see if we can find one that actually makes more sense and explains reality but before we do that, I wanna do a detour really quick and just ask the question, why would a sexual, secular naturalistic worldview be appealing to us? Because again, I'm a, like, I'm a, I'm a nerd. Like, I love Lord of the Rings and all that stuff. And so as a kid growing up, like, I was looking in the back of every closet, like, how do I find Narnia? Like, I wanted it to be true, right? And so if I just had to pick naturalistic worldview or supernatural, I'm going supernatural all day long because that, that, that sounds fun. But is it, is it more subtle than that? So then what would be the appeal to go to the secular naturalist route? And here's the appeal. Who gets to be the boss? See, Natasha Crane, we're reading through her book, Faithfully Different, and she's just helping us kind of balance the series and think deep about this. She captures this idea in, in the chapters you're going to be reading this week in preparation for life groups. But this one sentence, I think she, just ma- she makes a great case for understanding why it's so appealing. She says this, a major reason... Secularism is so influential is that it appeals directly to the desires of our fallen nature. It reinforces the desired authority of the self. So catch what she's saying. See what secular naturalism allows us to do is to be autonomous and independent from any sense of ultimate authority. It's like, if there was a God, or if God was just an idea, we've kicked him off, and we're saying, God, I'm the captain now. Like, that's not my worldview, but I get it, because I wrestle with that in my own story. Like, am I the only person here that wrestles with the idea of authority? Anyone else? Yeah, yeah, some of us, yeah. Uh-huh, mean yeah, that's me, yeah. Like, remember when, like, masks came on the scene? Let's not go there in a controversial way. I'm just trying to point something out. But like when, when, when COVID hit and it was like going and we're like, we're all going to die. And this is the zombie apocalypse and no one knows what's going on. And they were saying like, we should wear masks to be safe. I was like, I need a mask. And then I was like, where's the cool ones? I want to look cool. I want to be that guy. Right. But I was like, yes, wear a mask, wear a mask. But the minute they said, you have to wear a mask, forget you. <laughs> My view of science hadn't changed. My defiance emerged, Right. And there's something in us that that's the case. That's what's going on. That's what she's pointing to, that there's, there's an appeal to this because if there's no God, we get to be in charge. But the problem was with this is that there's kind of a, a bankruptcy to this view. So Because even if we think we're the boss, that we get to have ultimate authority in life, the challenge with that is that you and I still need an explanation for why we exist. Like, it doesn't matter how much autonomy or authority I want to claim for myself, I owe my existence to something, something before me, something beyond me, something bigger than me. And whatever that is, it has some say in who I am and what I am. And so, yes, I want to be the captain of my ship, the master of my faith, my fate, but the reality is, I'm not. Because last time I checked, we're all headed to the scrapyard, and death lays its claim on every single one of us. So what is that which precedes us? What is the it that came before you and me and explains us? See, and we cannot simply say it's the universe or the cosmic forces that evolved us over time because those things also need an explanation. And so what is the cause of it all? And so friends, let's get ready to dig in and think deep about this. And maybe we will think thoughts we never knew to think before. And we will find that there is something beautiful in the deep waters together. And so I wanna push into this idea that I don't think we're stuck at an impasse standing at the beach, wondering sandcastle or geode. That if we actually are willing to push in and ask some questions, we can come to a conclusion that there is a better map. And that by looking at the universe, we can ask some basic questions that help us come to a better explanation. And so here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna see if we can discover God by looking at the universe. And so there in your notes, I want to lay out a simple two-state premise that leads to a necessary conclusion. And this is how it goes. Number one is this. Everything that begins to exist needs a cause for its existence. Number two, the universe began to exist. And by universe, we can include everything that exists in space and time. So number three, the conclusion, therefore, the universe has a cause. Now here's the thing if both of those first two premises are true, that third statement necessarily follows. So the point of contention, the point of conversation, the point of chasing after it together is to ask if those first two premises are accurate, if those are real, if those are true. Because if they are, then the necessary conclusion is that the universe has a cause. And if that's the case, then it leads us to ask a really important question What is the cause of the universe? And so we're going to chase after this together by wrestling with some dilemmas that we're going to look at, three dilemmas that have these either-or conclusions to them. So each dilemma, it's going to be either this or this. It can't be both. And I know anytime we kind of talk either-or, it kind of pushes again on some of the cultural soft thinking that exists in our world today. And people are like, I don't like either-or thinking. It seems so black and white. You seem so small-minded to have an either-or mentality. That's just silly thinking. Either or thinking is a real If I find your car keys right now and I say, my car, are you going to be like, no, 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 that's mine. And I'm like, that sounds like either or thinking to me. Why can't it be both and? Why can't it be both your car and mine, right? <laughs> so either or thinking is just how we live life. It's how we make sense of things. So let's not get up with that. Let's just chase the question, which one makes more sense? And so here we go. The dilemma number one that we're going to walk through is this. The universe had a beginning or it has always existed. And so a way to kind of like model this, to draw a picture of it would look something like this. And so if we're looking at a, a beginning universe, it would go something like this. A very simple way to look at it. There's, there's the arc of time, that once upon a time in history passed somewhere, there was a beginning that started it all, right? So the universe had a beginning. Now if we're saying, no, no, no the universe didn't have a beginning, it has always existed, we could model it like this. And so the way it would the way it would work out is like, hey, there, there was never a beginning. Just the universe has always existed from eternity past, an infinite amount of time in the past. But that raises some interesting philosophical hmm's. That's the fancy way of saying conundrum. See, if the universe has always existed, here's a question: How did we ever get to today? Because what we're saying is that if we got to today, we went through a really big amount of time. So let's say we're hanging out at the beach still in Malibu, debating sandcastles and geodes. And we're like, hey, this is ridiculous. I'm getting hot now. It's January. It's way too hot. Let's go to Starbucks and get something refreshing to drink. And then we're just sitting in Starbucks and we're continuing the conversation. And we're like, hey, have you ever thought about infinity? You mean like Buzz Lightyear? Yeah. So maybe deeper? You're like, yeah, like... And then we're competitive, that's just, that's our friendship, we're that way. Like, I bet you I can count there faster than you. All right, go. One, two, three, four, five. And then Starbucks gets sick of us because we're freaking people out and they're like, leave. We're like, okay, I'll meet you here next week. And so next week we come back and I'm like, what number are you at? And you're like, I'm at a kajillion. And you know what number I'm at? I'm a kajillion plus one. But you know what's weird? How much farther do we have to go before we reach infinity? Like an infinite amount. And let's say we're at that Starbucks, and there was a guy that was over here in conversation. He was like, hey, I heard what you guys were saying, and I decided to count to infinity as well, but I'm doing it by two, so I'm twice as far as you. But the crazy thing is, he still has the same amount of distance to go to reach infinity. It doesn't matter how long you count, you're an infinite distance away from reaching that number. What? That's the challenge, because what happens when we count toward infinity, we're adding to an existing set that had a beginning. See, each number that we arrive at implies that at some point in the past we had a beginning moment, which was one. And so, what we're saying here is that if the universe has always existed, how many days have gone by before we arrived at today? An infinite number of days. What we're saying is, ta da, we reached infinity. Like, that's not possible. Like, we could never do that. We could never get there. So, like, just from a pure philosophical thinking of it, it seems to make sense that at some point in the past, and let's not get hung up on how how old it is. This isn't about interpreting Genesis. This is just saying it seems to make sense at some point in the past, there was a beginning moment. There was a one. There was day one or whatever that would be like. And you know what's amazing? Modern cosmology affirms that. Because when you press into what modern astrophysicists and and cosmologists will talk about, they talk about this idea that we live in an expanding universe. And so a better way to maybe model the picture than just a single straight line would be like an expanding universe that had a beginning point that goes outward like this. Well, my arrows are getting bad. 11 o'clock, here we are. Okay. (laughs) So think about this. If the universe has been expanding outward then if we could reverse the clock and go backwards in time, we would see the universe shrinking. And at some point in the past, all of the universe would come back to what they call the singularity, a dense point where all space, time, and matter was condensed into a single moment. And then when that moment decided to get big, you know what we call that? The Big Bang. And this is when I remember growing up in church, they're like, that's bad, that's evil. And I'm like, but if it's good science, aren't we supposed to pay attention to it? And this is when you begin to realize that if you actually have good science and good theology, they connect. Because the Big Bang seems to line up really well with what we read in the origin story of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1-3, God said, let there be light. I imagine that was a brilliant explosion of a beginning. Wow. Imagine that. And so it seems to make sense, at least in this moment, to make more sense that the universe had a beginning than that it always existed, which now leads to the second dilemma. The second dilemma goes like this: This beginning was either caused or it just happened. And so what we're chasing after with this question is, what, what what's going on right here? Before the beginning, prior to that moment, what's happening over here? And if we're saying, nothing, what we're saying like it just happened, what we're saying is that before the beginning of the universe, there was nothing, that's weird, because you know what comes from nothing? Nothingness, like again, let's just say we're bored at Starbucks, and they still let us come back every week, and we're just like, have you ever thought about nothing? You mean like my mind's blank, like, like any average man, like is that what you mean? No, like, have you ever considered, like, what nothingness is? Like, I'm trying to channel, like, Keanu Reeves from Bill and Ted. That's the voice in my head when I think about that. That's a frustrating thing to do. Go Spend time later today thinking about what nothingness is. And the moment you define what nothing is, it's no longer that thing because you've just defined it as something. Parents, if you just want to put your kids on timeout, go think about nothing and write me a paper about it. (laughs) It's a weird thing. See... It makes no sense that if there was nothing, then nothingness would have happened. But then people are like, no, but science has shown in laboratory experiments, like they put together this vacuum and in the vacuum, there was nothing in the vacuum and then they hit it with like gamma radiation or whatever the the, the energy would have been. And then in in this vacuum, these particles just begin to pop in and out of existence. Aha, something out of nothing. No, that's something out of neutralness. Because in the vacuum, it was just a neutral state of positive and negative ions or whatever the words would be that were sitting in there. And that's not the same thing, coming out of neutralness is not the same thing as coming out of nothing because that experiment is proof that it wasn't out of nothing because you have the vacuum and you have the scientists creating the experiment. It's the multiverse. (laughs) We are gonna be good friends because I love the Marvel movies. I have such hope for quantum mania. Please be good. But here's the thing with the multiverse. The multiverse doesn't give us the answer. All the multiverse does is push it back one. Because the multiverse still needs an explanation. What caused it? Where did that come from? Because everything that begins to exist needs a cause. You need a cause. I need a cause. This building needed a cause, which is what we're celebrating at our encounter. The hope and dream I have of my daughter's rooms one day being clean. Needs a cause. <laughs> and you can see where this is leading, right? As we're pointing at this, it's leading to this idea, of like, a high-level philosophical, like, like God? And this is where, like, little kids who are just thinking well about this ask the most brilliant question. Where did God come from? Like, parents, have you ever had that dropped on you at bedtime? like the 8 p.m. conundrum, and you're like, I'll just sing you a lullaby. And ah. It's a brilliant question because that means that kid is thinking well. And yet here's the answer. God didn't come from anywhere or anything because God, by definition, has always been. Which feels like we're cheating when we say that. Like, why, why can that be true of God, but not the universe? And the reason why is that the universe has space, time, and matter, which means it it requires an origin point, a beginning. But if God is of a different substance or a different reality, he doesn't. It's not cheating. That's just the necessary thing we're chasing because whatever this is has to be outside of the chain of things that had a beginning. Because if this thing has a beginning, then that's not what we're asking about. We're asking about the thing that came before that thing. So if God had Papa God, I want to know where Papa God came from, (laughs) right? Like that's the idea. And so God, by definition, is not in the category of things that came into existence or had a beginning, because he is. That's why when we open up the Genesis story, Genesis, the Bible, doesn't make an argument for God's existence. It just assumes it. In the beginning, God This is why when you see God revealing himself, he says things that are like, whoa, that that we try to understand who he is. So when God is showing up with Moses in that burning bush story, and and he's wanting to rescue his people out of bondage and slavery in Egypt. And so he's saying like, Moses, I'm sending you back to go rescue them. And Moses is like having the debate with God, like who am I and all these things. And and then he's like, well, then who are you? Who do I tell them sent me? And he's like, tell them that the God of their father, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has come for them. And he's like, okay, but, but... Who are you? And do you know what God says? God tells him his name. You know what God says his name is? I am. I am that I am, Moses. I know it's hard for you to grasp. I'm trying to help you understand. I exist. I'm reality. We are in the deep waters now, my friend. I just want to encourage you, if these are new thoughts, it's okay. I don't think like a too long sermon on a Sunday is going to answer it all for you, but it's going to push you in the right direction. And I just want to encourage you to chase it. So there in your note sheets, I put a little QR code to a, a website called Reasonable Faith. It's this beautiful resource by a very brilliant Christian philosopher named William Lane Craig, who has been so helpful in my own journey of wrestling through my thoughts. And so there, that QR code will take you to some, some, just some cool videos where he tries to unpack a lot of these things. And I've been so appreciative of him, just not even in my story, but even in the story of my own daughter's. Like Years ago, he wrote these little children's books to help small kids to understand ideas about God. So ideas like God's omniscience, like God is all-knowing, so how do we help make sense of that? God's omnipresence, God being everywhere present. Jesus will teach us this as he's having the conversation with the woman at the well, and like, are we supposed to worship in the temple or in Jerusalem? And Jesus is like, hey, God is spirit. So those who worship him need to worship him in spirit and truth. And so he wrote a book about this how God is not stuck in a body the way we are, that like God is spirit. So that, that, that allows us to access him anywhere and everywhere because he's spirit. And I remember giving this little book to my, my oldest daughter, like she was six years old. And I was just like, like, hey, this is a neat little story. And like, just read it and pay attention. And so she kind of runs off in the corner, reads the book. She comes back to me weeping. And I'm like, what went wrong? <laughs> and she says, daddy, if God doesn't have a body, how can I ever hug him? And as I just, as a parent, I was like so proud of her. You get it. Your little mind is wrestling with it. Oh, but you're distraught. Okay. I also, <laughs> and then I said, so let's talk about Jesus. Let's talk about the incarnation. Let's talk about the one we call Emmanuel, God with us. Because as we chase after Jesus, not only will you hug God, God is going to hug you back. And so that's just a resource for you to chase. And see that. But as we're chasing this, it seems to make sense that the universe was caused and that came from something. So let's give further thought and consideration to this. So dilemma number three, this cause was either personal or it was an impersonal force. So we can make it look something like that. So the cause of the beginning of the universe was either personal or it was an impersonal force. Now this is where, again, like my geekness comes in and like Star Wars, I'm like, yes, the force, the metachlorians, yes, that's all, that sounds so awesome. But if we're saying that this cause was an impersonal force, there's a problem with it and it's exposed by asking a very simple question. What caused the impersonal force to cause the beginning? Well, it was just in a state of motion, great. Who kicked off the motion? Well, it's just like the wind, the wind was blowing and suddenly boom, great. But who breathed the breath of that wind? Okay, we just need to take a little bit of a mental break here for a moment. So let's let's just imagine this. Imagine we just decided to turn the lights off in the room and just sit in darkness and just think for a minute. And then I said, okay, we're just gonna wait for the lights to come back on and we're just gonna sit in this space together. How long are we going to wait for the lights to turn back on? Like until one of us gets sick of it and goes and turns the lights on, right? Because they're not just turning on by themselves. Someone has to make that choice to turn them on. And see, an impersonal force, it can't be the first cause. It could be the first event. Like the big bang is not the cause, it's the first event. Because somebody had to go bang and cause it to come into existence. Someone had to make that choice. Okay, do this, another, another just quick experiment. Take your right hand and just kind of shake it loose. We gotta wake up a little bit. Raise your right hand. It's this one, if you're, don't mirror me, right? Okay. Why did your right hand just go up? Because you chose to. You chose to do it. I was maybe the stimulus to, to spark the idea, but you chose to do it. Uh, real quick, how come some of you didn't raise your hand? Because you're defiant. <laughs> You are also my people, <laughs> but guess what? You chose not to do it. It was still a choice, wasn't it? And that's, the, that's what we're getting at, that only a person could choose to cause the beginning. The fancy word is a being with causal agency, Someone that could bring it about. So whatever this is, whatever is going on here that caused all that, it has to be a being with a mind and a will to choose to cause it. An incredible power to bring it all into reality simply by bringing it into existence. So when we chase after the explanation for the universe and us in that equation, what we discover is that what seems to make the most sense is that the universe had a cause that was, a beginning that was caused by someone. Now here's the deal. That only gives us a very distant, extremely arm's length idea about God. That doesn't tell us a whole lot. Like what, that, like what we can think about God is more of a philosophical idea. That God is the uncaused cause, the first mover, the necessary being from which all life flows. But it doesn't tell us a whole lot about God. And so does that mean like that God is then just the ultimate guess? That we're still left on our own to figure it out? Well, if God is a personal being, then maybe God has revealed God's self to us which is one of the reasons why I look at this to say, God, is this you telling me who you are? And in doing that, telling me who I am? But we're not there yet. That's okay. That's just a question to consider. But here's the cool thing. We're not stuck just guessing about a God at a distance because again, as we look at the universe and the world, there's some things that maybe we could understand about this God. Because we are part of this creation. So maybe by looking at ourselves, we can extrapolate some ideas that are true of God. So we're no longer at the beach talking about the sandcastle. We realize that we are the sandcastles at the beach talking about each other. Like we're self-aware sandcastles having a conversation about who we are and how we came into existence. And we're like, looking at each other and like, you're amazing, you've got intricacies. How come your flying buttresses look so good? And it's like, I work out, but that's my problem, not yours. right? Like, like there's a, half of you got that. 9 a.m., they, they were with me, that's all right. <laughs> but is it possible that as we look at ourselves, in some way, if we are a reflection of this creator, that we could understand things about him by looking at ourselves. And so what can we discover about God by looking at ourselves? And here's just one simple idea that has profound implications. We are moral beings. Each of us has an innate sense of rights and wrongs. And this is revealed in a couple of ways. One of the ways that this is revealed in us is when we bring up the concepts of justice and fairness. So it was amazing. When, when my daughters were really little and they were old enough to begin to actually playing together, I didn't have to sit down and explain to them what fairness was. They figured that out real fast on their own. So it's from my youngest daughter who was like, it's not like she has all the dolls and she's not sharing and this isn't right. They're like wild feral animals going at it. Right? And so like technical natural women say, well, yeah, that's all there. They're just evolved animals, like two dogs going after a bone together. I'm like, no, it was more fierce than that. (laughs) Like, is there any, because they're not just like, rah, they're actually using words like you shouldn't and you ought and you need to share. Like they're pointing at something, trying to like cry foul. I didn't have to teach them this. They innately understood if you've wronged me, that's not right. But this whole sense of right and wrong, it's also revealed in another way. It's revealed whenever you and I feel the need to explain or justify our behavior. So years ago, I'm at Starbucks, not with you this time, with another group of people. (laughs) And I'd actually gotten there early. I'm meeting with a team and we're just having an offsite meeting at Starbucks. And again, as an introvert personality, I like to get there a little bit early. So for just a, a hot moment, I can just have it to myself. You feel me, anyone like that? Extroverts, you're like, how do you be alone? And I'm like, because we like ourselves. You need to, to work on yourself. Um, so I'm there, and so there's a group of six of us that are there, so I get my drink, and then I just got of pull over a table and I get the other chairs, and so now I'm sitting there all by myself with this uh, table of empty seats waiting for my team to show up, who are now late, so now it's just frustrating and awkward. And this guy comes walking up to the table, doesn't say anything he just grabs one of the chairs and begins to drag it over to where he wants to sit and I remember like oh dude dude I need that chair and he stops he looks at me and he looks at all the chairs and he goes you need this chair and the tone is everything right and so in this moment I'm like oh we are about to go down at Starbucks my (laughs) latte is still hot and my feet are fast I think I can handle this like (laughs) whatever's about to go down and I was like yeah, I need that chair. Like I'm setting up for a team meeting. My friends are almost here. Like, like, we're, like we need those chairs so no one's sitting on the ground. And he goes, you need all of these chairs. Stop. Yes. And so he walks over to the table. He grabs the chair and just shoves it into the, chair, the table. And he goes, you're being selfish. And he walks off. And immediately there arose in me this need to explain to him, no, I'm not being selfish. I'm being a good friend. I'm being the responsible one on my team. Everyone else is hanging me out to dry. like, Because like there was this thing, I've never met this man. The only thing I know about him is we speak English and we like Starbucks. And yet in that moment, we were both in agreement on some moral proposition. One should not be selfish, which is why I felt the need to explain to him I'm not. What is that? What are we pointing to? What are we wrestling with? What are we crying foul about? What are we trying to justify from? What are we hiding our bad behavior from so others don't see it? What is that that's going on inside of us? And if this is just some biological evolutionary development, something that's conducive to the flourishing of our species, then do you know what that means? There is no such thing as real morality. There's no such thing as something being actually right or wrong. It's just behaviors that have helped us as a species develop community over the generations. So what that means is that currently in our society, we believe that the the strong shouldn't prey on the weak. We believe that men should be on good behavior and not be abusive. We believe all these things that are there. But who's to say that another society has a whole other set of beliefs? That they think, no, the the strong should dominate the weak. Men should be ugly in all ways towards women. Things like rape are okay because it just propagates the species. I don't know about you, but I'm not moving over to that zip code. I'm looking at that and saying, that's wrong. Because there's something in me that says it's more than that. And so what is this that we're pointing at? It's like like when I'm watching TV and I put on the nature channel and I'm watching the gazelle running for its life and like it's nature red and tooth and claw and then the cheetah gets it and I'm like, that's a bad day for the gazelle. I'm not picking up the phone and calling 911. (laughs) Guys, I just saw a gazelle murdered on TV. Like, but I'll tell you, if I'm driving through the valley and I see a dude eating another dude, I'm calling 911. Because I'm not looking at that moment and being like, oh, you're like gazelle. You didn't run fast enough. So it's a tough day to be you. Because there's something that we understand that nature acting like nature is just nature. But when we act like nature, it's wrong. What is that? Like, what are we pointing at? Like, is it... Is murder wrong because it's illegal? Or is it illegal because it's wrong? Hmm. So when we're wrestling with this, when we're crying foul about it, when we're pointing at it, when we're trying to have the same conversation about it, what are we pointing at? What are we hiding from? Like, who wrote this into us? Who wrote this on our hearts? And again, I love as we're wrestling with this and then we look at things in Scripture, we see a cohesion of the map sometimes emerging. And I love what Paul talks about this in Romans. Paul, one of the early Christian leaders, Paul writes this in Romans 2. He says this, he says, when Gentiles who do not have the law. So he's meaning the, the, the non-Jewish people. So in the, in the Christian story, the Judeo-Christian story, God revealed himself to a specific group of people because through them, he wanted to reveal himself to the world. And so to this group of people, he gives his law, what we would call the 10 commandments. Now, I don't know if you've ever really thought about the 10 commandments, But it's not like God set the bar very high. Hey, don't kill each other. Don't steal from each other. Don't cheat on each other. Don't even want to do it. God, that's impossible. (laughs) It's like, no, I think those are really good things. I'm terrible at them. It's like if the bar was here, I don't mean Like the bar's here and I still trip over it, right? the The point Paul's making here is that, hey, Gentiles who never got those Ten Commandments, look at what he says. When they do by nature things required by the law. They are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them, and at other times even defending them. Wow, if this innate sense of right and wrong is real, it needs somebody who gave it to us. And so it would seem that this is pointing to God. Again, there's just a resource there in your message notes. There's a QR code to some resources, some YouTube video clips of somebody like drawing animations and narrating C.S. Lewis's works, Mere Christianity. C.S. Lewis is a brilliant thinker. I just I put that there as a tool again to help you process and think through these things because it would seem to be the case as we look at the universe and we look at ourselves. It would seem to be the case that our existence and our origin speak to the necessity of God's existence it would seem to be the case that our innate sense of right and wrong speak to the necessity of God's existence. And all we've done so far is had a walk on the beach in Malibu and had a conversation. We haven't even technically opened the Bible to prove any of this. We've just said, see how the Bible seems to sync up with this? Which is mean that if we're willing to just go into the deep waters and think, well, maybe there's a conclusion that we can come to. And this has happened to people over the years. There's this brilliant astrophysicist named robert jastrow who the more he studied cosmology and origin of the universe he went from atheism to agnosticism to i don't know what the heck is going on and i love what he writes about this the frustration of his own journey with coming to the conclusions that he was wrestling it with and i don't know where he landed the plane before he died but look at what he says about this his own wrestle and journey there in his book god and the astronomers he says for the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. And as he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. (laughs) I love that. He's like, dude, welcome to the party. The view is amazing up here. Let's keep chasing him together and see what we can find. Hmm. And so here we are comparing and contrasting these two vastly different worldviews. And it would seem to be the case that a supernatural worldview is sound. Meaning it's not irrational, nor is it held to by some blind belief, but it's actually reasonable. Like I believe with my eyes wide open. But the question is, is it more than just sound? Is it also satisfying? That doesn't mean it's easy, but is it satisfying? And I think before we chase that question about supernaturalistic worldview and the Christian worldview that's there, what happens when we ask that same question about secular naturalism? Is it satisfying? Because what are the implications of that worldview, if it's true? Well, here it is. There is no God. And we are nothing more than the product of cosmic happenstance. Floating specks in the vastness and ultimate emptiness of space. And we, like all things, will one day cease to exist and be completely forgotten. So what that means is that our universe is on an ever-expanding course. It's expanding. It's going from isolation to greater isolation. And if things continue as they are, one day the world, the universe, the cosmos will end in a heat death, all light and energy extinguished. So what we do today doesn't really matter. There is no meaning or ultimate purpose. And morality is simply a child's game that we're playing at, but there's nothing that is truly right and truly wrong. There is nothing virtuous in this life. There are no heroes and saints and there's nothing despicable in this life. There are no villains and monsters. That's the brute fact of a secular naturalist view of the universe. And the universe doesn't care about us because it's just a thing. In the end, no one is coming. And there will be none amongst us left to even care. That's heavy. And as I weigh into that possibility, I ask the question, how could I ever hope to find the good life in something like that? Or even hope to find good in something like that? And yet there's something in me that screams there has to be more. And maybe there's something in you too that screams for that. Because hey, if that is your worldview, I'm not coming after you in a mean way. I just want you to think about this. But if that's your worldview and you're like, no, I think the secular naturalist worldview is the same way, but you believe that life is more than just a random accident. Like if you believe that what you do really matters, that there is good to strive for and evil to overcome, if you believe that you're connected to a human race, a lineage that's striving to find something greater than how we find ourselves in this world, if you believe that beauty and truth matter, they exist, and we should try to embody them in some way, then you've got one of two choices. And the first choice is this, give all that up because it's nothing more than the childish delusions of highly evolved primates. Your worldview does not allow for it. You're actually stealing from the worldview that believes God exists. Or, consider the possibility that maybe there is more to life than what you've discovered so far. That maybe there is more to reality, more to this world, more than to the universe than you could possibly imagine. And as you wrestle with that and you wander about that, I just want to put before you an invitation to consider the possibility of more. An invitation that what if there is a God who exists and he is good? Because he's the source of life and truth and beauty. And what if you exist because you were made for him, to belong to him, to know him, to enjoy him, to reflect his goodness in the world around you to the creation that's all around you? Wouldn't that be worth exploring? And so there's this beautiful invitation we find in one of the ancient songs in scripture, Psalm 34, 8. It goes like this, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. So that's an invitation for you today. And so if you're here and you're just on a journey and you would say like, I'm just kind of, I'm kind of wondering about this world. I'm like a sojourner. Just checking things out and wondering if if I can find a path to life, if I can find meaning, if I can find purpose. I want you to know this invitation, it's for you. Like there's a guy who's saying, hey, come, come and see. Check me out, bro. Come and see if I've got the goods, if I've got what you're looking for. And it doesn't mean you have to buy the whole story all at once. Just take a step and explore. And if you're wondering about that and you're like, hey, I don't know if I believe anything that you guys believe in this place, I want you to know there's a place for you to be amongst us in that. Just take the journey and see because that invitation is for you. But this is also an invitation for all of us to taste and see that the Lord is good because maybe you're here today and you're like, no, no, I've bought into the story. But when you're talking about being that high school kid who was wondering if it's worth it, if it's real, that's where I find myself today. Like, I'm not wondering. I'm actually wavering today. I'm wavering in this thing called faith, and do I believe it, and can I trust it, and am I gonna give a life for it? Because there's implications in the world, and I wanna take it seriously, but I'm wondering if maybe I've just been sold a bill of goods. Is there something to this? And what I'd want you to know is, hey, this invitation is for you. Because here's the thing. Jesus calls us to a faith that's beautiful. He calls us to having a childlike faith. And what that means is a faith that says, I trust you. I trust you enough to go with you even when I don't get it. And let me tell you, that's a totally different faith than a childish faith. You're never called to a childish faith. And maybe what you're wavering with is you're wrestling because you've only ever had a childish faith. You've never actually realized that a childish faith is something you grow out of. But a childlike faith is something you grow up into. And so you keep pursuing when you don't get it. You keep chasing when you don't understand it taste and see that he is good and he has something for you maybe you're here today and you're like i'm good i'm not wondering i'm not wavering but i'm kind of wondering if maybe there is more if there's more to what i i've i've encountered so far like like god do you have more for my story like like, is, is, is all there is is, like, showing up on a Sunday and figuring it out? Like, do you have more for me? And here's what I want you to know. The invitation is for you, too. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Like, if God is the feast, we've only gotten to the hors d'oeuvres. There is more to this life, and if you will say, Jesus, I want what you have, and I will trust you with all of me, and I will take that step with you, and where there is fear and trembling in the journey, I give you my yes, because I believe you have more for me. You will step into a greater and greater life, because we are going to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. The Proverbs say that the path of the righteous is like the first gleam of dawn, shining ever brighter to the full light of day, that as we walk with him, it gets brighter and brighter, and the deep gets greater and greater, and we that we were made for more because we were made for him so don't give up lean in and see what he wants to do in you so father we want to come in this moment and acknowledge the fact that we may all be in different places So whether we're wondering, we're wavering, or wondering, would you meet us right where we're at and whisper into the depths of our soul that you have more for us. And so we want to come before you with a posture that says we're open. We want to lean in and see what you have for us. And so as we step into this moment, would you come? And call us into something greater. Call us into the life you have for us. Jesus, you said you came to give us life, life to the full. So I'm asking that you lead us into that. As we give you the reins and the permission to speak truth that sets us free today. Amen.